Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the 39th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. These calls are held every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. My name is Scott Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have Daniel Zirilli, Chief Climate Policy Advisor and one NYC Director for the City of New York. We are streaming on YouTube Live. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using uh, my Twitter handle, at US of Disaster. You can also hear the COVID calls recorded as podcasts. Just go to soundcloud.com and connect to the COVID calls podcast. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and future topics. And please do feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. On Friday, we will talk about COVID-19 risk communication and misinformation with Jeanette Sutton from the Risk and Disaster Communication Center at the University of Kentucky and Joan Donovan of the Shorenstein Center on Media Politics and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. I also have a special announcement here tomorrow, Friday, May 8th at 8 a.m. Pacific time. It's a transnational disaster STS COVID-19 research collaboration discussion. Transnational disaster STS COVID-19 research collaboration discussion about COVID-19 and education. The aim of this project, and this is uh, organized by my colleague Kim Fortune and others, the aim of this project is to build a social science research process and infrastructure to support ongoing open-ended examination of the cultural transformations resulting from called for by the COVID-19 pandemic. The work will be transnational and collaborative building comparative and global perspectives on ways COVID-19 is characterized as a problem governed and challenges established norms and ethical political visions. So please do join that discussion tomorrow morning with Kim Fortune and to receive the Zoom information for that connection, just reach out to Kim directly uh, via her email kfortune, K-F-O-R-T-U-N at uci.edu or just look her up on the UC Irvine website. So you won't wanna miss that. As of today, there are 3,815,561 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 3,721,779 cases yesterday. 1,245,622 of those are in the United States, up from 1,214,572 yesterday. There are now a total of 75,054 deaths reported in the United States from COVID-19, up from 71,526 yesterday. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers that I've been reading, I've also been reading a life story every day, and I'd like to continue that now. This is an obituary that appeared in the Philadelphia Inquirer, April 25th. Henry Grimes, 84, bassist who played with jazz greats. Henry Grimes was a bass player who led a life worthy of the big screen. He was 22 when he burst onto the scene at the 1958 Newport Jazz Festival, where he played with six band leaders, including Thelonious Monk, Benny Goodman, Sonny Rollins, Lee Konitz, Jerry Mulligan, and Tony Scott. Word had spread about the young Philadelphian with his Juilliard education, quiet and serious demeanor, and strong, bold sound. A biography on Mr. Grimes's website said, Earlier that year in Cleveland, Mr. Grimes performed with Miles Davis and his group, including John Coltrane, Julian Cannonball Adderley, Bill Evans, and Philly Joe Jones. After Newport, he toured with Rollins for 10 years. His life took a drastic turn after a trip to California in 1968. In Los Angeles, he found little work and disappeared from public life for 35 years. Many people thought he had died. However, in 2002, a social worker and jazz enthusiast from Georgia found him living in a hotel in Los Angeles getting by with odd jobs. After an appeal from fans, New York bassist William Parker shipped a bass to Mr. Grimes in December of 2002. Five months later, Mr. Grimes returned to New York and performed with Parker at the Avant-Garde Jazz Vision Festival in May 2003. Mr. Grimes, an avant-garde double bassist, violinist, and poet, died from complications of the coronavirus April 15 at the Northern Manhattan Rehabilitation and Nursing Center in New York City. He was 84. He was very deep, he was gentle and patient and kind to everyone, his wife, Margaret David Davis Grimes said, and everyone who met him loved him. 
He was born in 1935 to Georgia and Leon Grimes Sr. and grew up in South Philadelphia with an older sister and a twin brother. He started playing the violin at 12, but at 15 he switched to the bass at Massbaum Technical High School and then went on to Juilliard. He's survived by his wife. There are no plans for a memorial service. I'd like to turn to our discussion for today. And I'd like to, in doing that, introduce my guest. Daniel Cirilli is the Chief Climate Policy Advisor and one NYC Director for the New York City Office of the Mayor. Under Mr. Cirilli's leadership, New York City recently released its newest long-term strategic plan, 1NYC 2050, which includes bold new actions to confront the climate crisis, achieve equity, and strengthen democracy, demonstrating what a Green New Deal looks like in action. Since 2013, he's positioned New York City as the global leader in the fight against climate change. Until recently, he served on the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Advisory Committee for the Sustained National Climate Assessment. He also concluded a three-year term on FEMA's National Advisory Council and advised the state of Louisiana on its 2017 Coastal Master Plan update. Previously, he was Senior Vice President for Asset Management at the New York City Economic Development Corporation and spent five years with Bechtel Infrastructure Corporation. He is a licensed professional engineer in New York, holds an MS in civil and environmental engineering from MIT. Daniel, really thank you for joining me on COVID calls today. It's a real pleasure to be here, Scott. And I just want to commend you for starting off this conversation with that obituary. I think, you know, with the ongoing tragedy, sometimes these, the, these numbers can be so overwhelming and it's, it's hard to remember sometimes that every single person is, you know, is a, is a world to someone else and is a member of a family and has a, so many outside interests. It's a really, it's, this is just such an ongoing tragedy that we're going through right now. So thank you for doing that. Well, the grieving for this, as I was discussing with my guest yesterday, Chuck Strozier has proven to be very difficult. We're watching, watching these dashboard numbers, but um, we're not going to be able to wait till this is over to start the mourning and the grieving. And so that's why we started, um, talking about these life stories. I appreciate your comments there. I wanna remind people that you can get questions in for Dan Cirilli uh, on YouTube Live. You can put those in the chat or you can just um, tweet them at me and just uh, tag me at US of Disaster or you can email me throughout the conversation, sgk23 at drexel.edu. Please get your questions in early so we can get to them throughout the conversation. So um, Dan, I've been starting all these just by asking people how they're doing. Um, how long have you been working from home? How are things in your neighborhood? It's, um, it's a great question. It feels like all, all these days are blurring together uh, for so many of us. Absolutely. And we're now on week eight of uh, our team is working from home. We're working remotely, tapping into all the tools and technologies that are now available. I can't imagine what this would have been like 10 years ago or even five years ago, just being able to use things like Zoom and, um, and all the WebEx tools we have and uh, the, the Wi-Fi connectivity. It's, it really is a game changer for being able to do this. Um, but it's not easy. And I think there's a lot of us that are, um, you know, it's certainly, it, there's, there's worse things to complain about for sure. But uh, the, um, the challenge of, you know, working from home and trying to educate kids at home and, uh, and, and juggle all that, it's, uh, it's difficult for a lot of parents, a lot of families right now. So can we talk a little bit about your, your background? You're in a, what I have to say has got to be one of the most interesting and challenging jobs in municipal governance around the world today. What's your path to becoming the chief climate policy advisor for New York City? Yeah, it's not a straight line, I'll tell you that. Um, and so you read in my bio that I'm, I'm trained as an engineer. I worked on infrastructure projects in and around New York City for a number of years, and then made the jump into municipal government over 15 years ago with uh, an organization called the New York City Economic Development Corporation. And I was uh, doing a lot of work like uh, maintenance and rehabilitation and construction of piers and bulkheads. Uh, spent a bunch of years on our maritime portfolio and ultimately had uh, profit and loss responsibility for things like the cruise terminals in New York City, the food distribution center, uh, some railroad assets, uh, cargo facilities, ferry terminals. So all of the things that when Hurricane Sandy hit, um, are naturally on the waterfront and took a beating. And so um, I was immediately drawn into the uh, recovery process from Hurricane Sandy, helping our tenants get back up and running, help get those transportation assets operating as quickly again as possible. And with my knowledge of the city's waterfront and the engineering background, 
I ended up being pulled into the uh, the recovery planning, the long-term resiliency planning for New York City after Hurricane Sandy, and was ultimately appointed by Mayor Bloomberg at the time as the the first the city's first director of resiliency uh, in New York City. And that was you know that that was sort of the the pivot in my career um, that has taken me through a number of different areas within city governments related to energy, sustainability, climate policy, divestment, all the different things that we're doing as a city. Uh, but it was really, you know, I could trace it all back to Hurricane Sandy being a major pivot. Um, I was in the, you could think of it as the right place or the wrong place at the right time. So Sandy is a turning point for you. Can you say a little bit more, like what was your experience in the, in the midst of the hurricane? I mean, I, in doing this kind of research for a long time, I often find people have often a quite specific disaster or some specific thing that happens that flips a switch for them. They say, things don't have to be this way. Right, right. And, um, you know, I, I experienced Hurricane Sandy here at home with my family and you know, I wasn't out doing sort of emergency response, but it was the weeks afterward where we were getting our, our operations back up and running. You saw the impact it had on our city. It was, uh, it was the worst natural disaster we've ever faced. 44 lives were lost. $19 billion in damages, all the, all the disruption to our economy and our infrastructure. And, um, you know, I took, a, I took a tour. I live on Staten Island, and I had taken a tour down by uh, a neighborhood called Newdorp Beach and had just seen the, just the devastation, uh, the, what had been the waves had rolled right through and knocked homes off their foundations, um, you know, had gone really right through the front doors and torn up the first floors of houses. And it's only about, you know, from where I am on, uh, on Staten Island, it's not that far from here. And it, mm. it, it, it's, a, it, it's not always true that it needs to, like, be brought home um, in a, quite so direct a way. But in this case, it was. It was a very, like, this just happened down the block from me mm. and, you know, there but for the grace of God. And so it's, um, it made it just absolutely real. Because I think what we do in a lot of times in, you know, in our work with, planning and, and strategic planning for cities and urban resilience and all these different um, uh, planning exercises, we can sometimes deal with a lot of the threats that we face as a city in an academic way. And I know New York City very much was in that space and was aware of the risks of hurricanes in that instance um, before Hurricane Sandy had hit, but it was all, it was almost theoretical. It's here are the things that we could happen and we can visualize it on the maps and we can understand it that way. Um, but you know, to be able to start doing things about it, you know, it took Hurricane Sandy to open up the floodgates of federal money to begin operationalizing the response and the things that really need to happen to, uh, to, to recover better from uh, those kind of events. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's, when you think about how individual disasters, I mean, we won't, don't want to think that individual cities like New York are gonna have to experience a Hurricane Sandy per city to do the kind of learning necessary to make climate adaptation real. Um, and yet the way you've described it, of course, when an event like that happens, there's a clear choice now. I mean, for cities, even New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, they sh should have known better, but there was still a moment there where they didn't take on board the kind of changes that New York City has. But you know, that's a decade plus later, it just seemed that New York at that moment, I mean, those decisions, I guess, were already made in advance and ready to go? Or was there a lot of deliberation that this was a climate disaster and we needed to react to it as such? Well, it, it, it took leadership, you know, it certainly took the you know, mayoral leadership in that moment to say, here's what we're going to do different and not just fight the last war, but really think wider about the risks of climate change and what we need to do about it. That isn't, that's, uh, that doesn't just happen, right? That, that does need the leadership. Uh, there's also a different point around, you know, and I think it's it's certainly it's at least partly relevant now in the COVID disaster that, you know, when things happen in New York City and you've got the media capital of the world here in New York City and all the cameras are, you know, shining bright right here in New York City, when it happens here, it does have a, a more outsized impact, I think, on how people do perceive things. And, you know, a lot of credit to the folks in New Orleans because they've done a lot of amazing work sure. um, after Katrina, but it didn't have this, it, you know, it got a spotlight, but a different kind of spotlight than things that happen in New York City, just because this is where the media is. And when the media experiences something directly, I think that actually, it's, it's, a, it's an important difference. Yeah, I don't mean in any way that I have great colleagues in New Orleans who were fighting that battle before Katrina and, sure, and after. Sure. But as you said, with the media spotlight there in your backyard and the, and the resources at hand, New York was 
was vigorous in jumping into that and redefining it as a, as a moment to take climate action. I want to just read something that you published, um, just a bit of it, on, er on Earth Day in Gotham Gazette. Really powerful op-ed. I hope everybody will take a look at it. I have it posted uh, on Twitter, and this is a quote from that, making a bit of a, a pivot here to the disaster we find ourselves in today. You say, an unbearable number of lives lost each day, livelihoods disappearing or threatened, and the uncertainty of what might come next is disrupting communities. Our infrastructure is strained to the brink, and our most marginalized communities are bearing a disproportionate brunt of the pain. I'm, of course, talking about the ongoing devastation of the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, you're, you're writing this on, on Earth Day, but making this connection. And then you say, the tragedy is that these disruptions are already equally true of our ongoing, ongoing climate crisis came from New Yorkers when Hurricane Sandy came ashore in 2012. These climate disruptions will only be made worse and more chaotic in the reality of our new COVID-19 world. In many ways, you say this global health emergency has given us an early preview of how our climate crisis will unfold. How, how, first of all, I really enjoyed reading that, but how is it a preview? Well, I think what we're seeing, what we're seeing now is certainly a big disruption, um, you know, globally felt uh, that happens to be a public health disaster. But we know that the impacts of climate change sometimes are thought of a little too narrowly around there's going to be more water, there's going to be more heat, but it really is the social disruption, the public health uh, outcomes, the food insecurity, the conflict, the migration, um, all of that that I think um, uh, is of a much greater magnitude than just the, I think, the, the physical impacts uh, that, that we will see from climate. And so um, what we're seeing now in a couple of ways is just, it almost feels like a dry run of how we're going to respond to a global crisis like climate change. And, um, you know, we're all hunkered down. We're doing, most of us are doing the right thing around, you know, social distancing and uh, sacrificing some parts of our lives for the greater good. Well, we're going to be doing more of that over the future as sea levels rise, as it gets hotter, as, you know, we start to see more impacts in our ecosystems. All of this is going to take a massive collective action um, in order to really deal with the impacts. But hopefully we can also take those kinds of actions to head off the worst of those impacts. We know we've locked in a bunch of changes already from uh, climate change, but we need to be able to, to come together and take big actions to head off this bigger crisis that is really looming over us. We'll get past this COVID um, challenge. It may take months, it may take years to, that we're still going to be feeling the effects of this, but we know it's going to have an end date. And at the and when we reach that end date, we're still going to be looking at a um, you know this this looming tidal wave of climate impacts coming our way that are not getting any better. And I guess the point of the op-ed was to really make the point that you know, we are, there's going to be clear stimulus and investment that comes out of this COVID um, recovery process. We have to center climate at the, at the heart of that recovery because that's how we're going to be able to tackle both challenges to restart and accelerate our economic recovery and to point ourselves in the direction of clean energy and environmental justice and preparing for the risks that we've locked in. Um, this may be our last chance. This may be our last major global investment moment in what many people are talking about as the climate decade to, uh, to really bend the curve. And, and we talk a lot about flattening the COVID curve. Well, flattening the climate curve is, uh, there's, a, there's a clear corollary to that uh, challenge as well. There's so many things in what you just said, I wanna dive into each, each part of them. I wanna remind people, go ahead and get your questions in for Dan Cirilli. You can put them into YouTube live chat and you're listening to COVID calls. Um, Dan, I think the, the first part of that I want to, um, actually, there was some news that was made today. We were chatting about just before the C40 cities um, came out with a, an announcement, an accord of sorts today in terms of the way they will react to the pandemic and, and the way that um, connects to climate change adaptation plans. Could you tell us a little about that organization and also what, what that uh, accord calls for? Great. Um, C40 is a, is a fantastic organization. Uh, it is a network of leading cities around the globe that are taking aggressive action on climate change. And it's a lot of the, you know, big mega cities around the world, the New York's and London's and, uh, you know, really all, on all continents. And what we came together, you know, they've been, C40 has itself been pivoting its actions to really make sure it's supporting cities in this moment of, of COVID need. And so mayors have been coming together and having conversations around, 
um, what the response and recovery efforts look like. And that task force effort today uh, uh, launched a set of principles for a healthy, a sustainable, and an equitable recovery process, really centering climate at the heart of our recovery, uh, making sure that we are using this moment to uh, pursue a just transition, green jobs, and, uh, and, and centering equity at, at the heart of this as well, and recognizing that you know, the neighborhoods, the communities that are being hardest hit uh, uh, by this crisis are also the neighborhoods that we've seen have uh, incredible in environmental injustices over time uh, that are also making it, uh, we're seeing the, the more disproportionate impacts in those communities from the looming climate challenges that we face. And so it was a really powerful statement and Mayor de Blasio um, was thrilled to sign on and, and be part of this organization and, and, and with I think now 36 other cities that have directly signed on to this commitment that they are going to be uh, really dealing with the recovery of COVID in light of the climate crisis and the things we need to do to that really merge these solutions uh, and point to an accelerated economic recovery, which is what we're going to need. The jobs of the future are not going to look like the jobs of today, and we're going to see a lot of disruption in our economy. And uh, you know, the, the the just transition into a clean energy economy is a is a big, I think. Um, a big set of solutions that we need to have the courage to seize and uh, you know mayors across the globe are now stepping up and seizing that opportunity. So just to, to go a little bit further with the kind of economic recovery that's going to be called for from the pandemic, can you give some um, more specific examples of places where you might see that recovery funding actually um, accomplishing, moving towards some of the aims you're talking? I want to talk about the 2050 plan too, but this is a sort of unexpected expected moment in which we also have to be ready to use recovery funds to not act as if climate change isn't real, but to take real action. So can you get a little more granular about some of that? Well, yeah, I think there's some easy things to talk about around um, really putting some strong voice behind uh, the idea that, you know, we can't just be coming out of this recovery by, you know, continuing to subsidize fossil fuels and oil and gas companies that have like taken a beating and aren't gonna come back the same way. The demand is just not gonna be there. And we know the long-term outlook is poor and that's been driving a lot of the work that we've been doing on fossil fuel divestment in New York City. Okay. Um, and instead, it's really about making sure that we are investing in the right climate solutions as part of this. And this is job creating solutions. Um, it can take a lot of forms. It can be clean energy, it can be transmission, it can be green infrastructure and natural solutions, um, the kinds of resilient infrastructure that we need there's, I think, a whole spectrum of things we can talk about, about the kind of solutions that we need. But it's a very clear choice that um, we could be spending our money to get back to the status quo, but we know the status quo wasn't working. We need to make different choices and we need to point ourselves in a different direction. And, you know, this is a moment to do this. And this may be one of our last moments to get this right. One of the things that people have been um, just observing uh, is, uh, clear skies. Uh, the airplane traffic over my house is less. Um, you know, animals appearing in places they were always there, but maybe they're coming out mm -hmm. more. We're you know we're sensing, and I think there's um, some data out that the um, greenhouse gas emissions are down significantly um, because of the global industrial slowdown that's underway and the transportation slowdown, but. That's temporary. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we are going to go back to some sort of normal, and it's still going to be an industrial normal, even though, as you're saying, this is a moment to begin to suggest alternatives to that industrial normal. But we are going back to some transitional phase. Are you worried that people will, in the context of industry, in the context of climate change, that people will say, okay, well, that was an interlude, but then their minds will just revert back to the mean? Well, I, I, none of us want to be able to get to that sort of clean air and emissions cuts by going through a pandemic, right? Um, well so said. This is not exactly the, uh, the thing to celebrate, but perhaps it gives people a glimpse at what that future might look like for a brief moment of time. And, um, you know, things will come back, economic activity comes back. And unfortunately, right now, that means greenhouse gas emissions and air pollution comes back. But it doesn't have to be that way. And I think that's a clear point. And if, if people have been enjoying the, the air quality benefits 
here in New York City, I believe air quality is about uh, 25%, you know, emissions are 25% less right now. Yeah. Um, that is a big impact. And I think, you know, we know the health impacts from PM 2.5 pollution and what that means for asthma and, and hospitalizations and deaths in New York City and seeing the connection to uh, air pollution neighborhoods, neighborhoods that are experiencing more air pollution have higher likelihood of COVID related deaths as well. And there's, you know, maybe not a total causation there, but there's clear correlation around uh, the the understanding of how the virus is moving on air, with air pollution. And of course, those are in our neighborhoods that have faced incredible environmental injustice as it is, our communities of color, um, uh, poorer communities in New York City. And so it's, um, this is an opportunity, I think, to, to, you know, witness and not just have to imagine a better world mm. um, that we can create. And, you know, we need to be able to, to decouple, you know, the things that we need in our life from the, the, you know, thinking that that needs to be a pollution source. And therefore, that's just the trade off of the, you know, the things we need in our lives. It doesn't have to be that way. So you mentioned this is a really important Point, I think that uh, the PM 2.5, could you just say what that is and, and say a little bit about, I had Beverly Wright on, she's an environmental justice researcher in Louisiana, and she talked about that in the context of, of Cancer Alley, but maybe people don't know that that's relevant also to New York City. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, sure. We, we have a situation in New York City where uh, a, lot of our, uh, a lot of our electrical generation, there's requirements that it needs to be in New York City because we're a little transmission starved and we need to be able to get better access to clean energy sources outside of the city, which is why we're going after offshore wind and things like hydro and solar. Uh, but for now, we have a lot of fossil fuel generation in the city. Uh, that fossil fuel generation, when it's burned, it creates uh, air pollution. And that's one of the ways that's measured is in PM 2.5, which is you know, particulate, um, particulate pollution that has a very clear and scientifically um, sound um, connection to uh, all sorts of bad health outcomes, including asthma, including hospitalizations, and yes, even deaths. And we can measure that when there's more pollution, you will have you know greater um, uh, you, you will have you know worse health outcomes and, and greater numbers of deaths. And so that's a that's a also there's a clear part of the story where that ha that happens in particular neighborhoods and you know in neighborhoods that are facing environmental injustice over year, over over many years and so it's particular communities that are that are facing this challenge in New York City in and around the the parts of the city that have that uh, fossil fuel generation so for us it's you know part of our clean energy strategy is clearly about the global impact and the, the things we need to do as a city to, to participate in order to achieve the Paris Agreement. But there's a very local um, uh, uh, consideration here on getting to clean energy so that our, uh, our communities and our residents live healthier lives. Uh, and, and we're seeing that play out here in the, it's some of the same neighborhoods that are seeing the same disproportionate impacts during the COVID crisis. Uh, that see the same disproportionate effects of air pollution and climate change. Um, it's a it's a common long-term story, and it's something we need to reverse and really prioritize environmental justice in the actions that we are uh, pursuing here in New York City, for sure. I think that's such a, a powerful point and a clear illustration and something you said a moment ago. I, I think we should underline, nobody wants to live through a pandemic to see these kinds of changes but it doesn't make someone an eco-fascist to say, hey, in, in this moment, we're actually seeing what a cleaner, what, you're talking about better air quality in this case. Um, you know, it, it doesn't, um, the kind of, I think sometimes of language that people use that I've heard to say, hey, you know, don't use this as a moment to advance your political agenda about climate change. The real impact on distressed communities, that's not advancing something that isn't already political and important that we take on board every single day, right? I mean, these justice right. challenges are every day in New York City. That's right, and it's, it's, it's almost perverse to be saying that that's the, you know, those are politicizing the recovery needs of people and their health and their kids and their livelihoods. I mean, who's really politicizing this? is the fossil fuel industry who's pushing for greater bailouts and you know continued subsidy for you know fossil fuel burning that is causing this crisis causing these health impacts that's the real politicization that's happening here not people who are fighting for clean air and clean water and you know the, the right to be able to leave their homes right it's that's it's a crazy 
it's a crazy media environment that we're in where where one of those ideas takes hold and not the other. Absolutely. And I think the point has been made and also worth underlining that many of the people who are working um, in essential work, uh, so-called, are also the ones who come from these communities who may be at the fence line or they may be in these sort of communities that suffer from environmental racism and the legacies of environmental injustice. And so we, there's, you know, making those connections is really important. And I think it seems like that's a big part of what you're, what you're trying to do with the 2050 plan as well. It's just, it's a very, um, it's a very clear thread through all of the work that we're doing here in New York City and under Mayor de Blasio um, to really take on this, uh, the, these, these inequities that have manifested themselves over decades uh, here in New York City. And it's, you know, this is a moment to address those challenges. And this is a moment to connect those challenges to the longer term climate challenges that we have that will have similar impacts and maybe even greater impacts if we don't do the right things now. people that you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking to Dan Cirilli. Uh, please get your questions into YouTube live chat or you can email them to me directly or get them up on Twitter. I have a question I'll get to in just a second, but I want to stick for just a minute um, back to some of the lessons we may be learning in this moment, but we have to be attentive to. Um, and this observation actually comes from uh, colleagues of mine at Drexel. I don't know if you know the Urban Climate Change Research Network um, North American Hub is actually mm -hmm. at my university um, and directed by an engineering colleague and a genius, Franco Montalto. And, mm -hmm. and he and I have come together with uh, Richard Dilworth, who's in our politics department, and Mimi Scheller, who's in sociology. And we've been talking about these issues. We're writing something about this. And he pointed out, he was at the last COP meeting and he pointed out it was just a bummer of a meeting. Uh, a lot of the goals weren't reached and you know, Bolsonaro and President of Australia and Trump was sort of like basically thumbing their nose at this global movement. And it seemed like there was almost a fatalism creeping in. Maybe that's always a bit there in the climate change adaptation world. <laughs> and then we find ourselves three months later, four months later now, having engaged in the greatest collective effort Right. that any of us can remember in our lifetimes, which is where most of us are in our homes, modified our daily lives to protect ourselves, but mostly to protect people we don't even know. That seems to me like so something to learn a lesson from, but how do I translate that lesson from that into the kind of collective action necessary to achieve real climate goals? I don't know. There hasn't been a decades-long campaign of deception and denial to make you think viruses aren't real. Um, and that's a, there's a real point there around the money that's been spent, the lobbying that's been done to undermine that action and has led to this moment where the cops have been almost ineffectual. Uh, we got to a Paris agreement, but nations still aren't upping their ambitions, they're not meeting their ambitions. And I think, you know, the, the root cause of all of this is the lack of American leadership on the world stage to be able to um, help drive the globe toward a better place. I think over the last, you know, probably in the entire post-war era after World War II, American leadership was vital to establishing the global, um, you know, consensus on how we how we deliver and how we deal with problems. And right now, that's just it's not there, and we're we're walking away from it in so many areas, and nowhere more notably than uh, with the Paris Agreement and with climate change. And uh, it, it's, it, we need to fix that. We need to fix our democracy if we're really gonna get to the heart of fixing uh, what's wrong with our climate and being able to take those kinds of actions that we're doing now that we've all come to, um, to deal with this looming long-term challenge that we have with climate. I, I think that's an extraordinary insight and, and thank you for sharing that. And I hadn't quite thought of it that way, but, but you're right, we haven't, um, with all the debates about the pandemic in the United States, and certainly we're calling, calling, trying to call out misinformation, there hasn't been a concerted effort to convince us we couldn't take collective action against a pandemic, but there certainly has about collective action to climate change. That's a really, really strong point that we have to keep in the front of our minds, that our perceptions of what's possible or impossible are not necessarily hardwired into our brains. They're part of the, the broader 
politics of our time, right? Right, and, and even thinking about what's happening now, that we've all taken these drastic actions and changed our lives and you know, consuming less and traveling less and flying less and or not at all. And you know, our greenhouse gas emissions are gonna take a little dip, but it's not like they're dropping 50%, right? So you know, there's a rigorous debate going on and continue, will continue to go on in the climate space around the choices you make in your own life and your personal behavior choices versus the systemic. And of course, they're both important, but there's a lot of folks who would tell you that you know only the personal behavior choices are what's necessary, and I think a lot of that is driven by you know BP who first came up with the concept of your your carbon footprint. You know a lot of that is seeded disinformation from the start to make you think it's your problem, and we're seeing in this in this moment when we've all taken dramatic personal action to cut emissions and change our consumption patterns, we're only seeing a very small drop. Um, in the grand scheme of things in our greenhouse gas emissions. And so, you know, we would need to do this a couple times a year to be on track to hit the targets that we need for a 1.5 degree world. Well, that's not practical. We need to change the underlying systems and uh, the energy sources and the politics around all of this if we're really going to get to the heart of what it takes to solve our climate crisis. Well, I, I want to keep talking with you about this because I think that it, we got to keep tracking the possibilities for real reform, I'm gonna focus on the US here, for real reform in the United States medical system. Um, and I think we're hearing things discussed now that were deemed impossible even by Democrats three months ago. Um, so it, in the fullness of time with the pandemic in a couple of years, we may have a better picture of actually what collectivities are possible. Individuals wearing a mask or staying home is one thing, um, but making it so that our national stockpile of ventilators never runs dry again, and that we people don't go broke or die because they don't have health insurance. That doesn't doesn't seem like we can leave that in the wind anymore. That seems like the pandemic has really nailed that down as a as a must do. The there's, a, there's a role for government. There's a role for national leadership in Absolutely. these crises, and you know the the effort to just like leave things to the cities and the states and. Know, the feds will step in as a backup. Well, if we have a national crisis, we need national leadership. That's just apparent to everyone now. And we're going to see more of that. It's going to become more apparent as the impacts of climate change play out that we're going to need a, a robust federal leadership in order to um, help get us in the, right, in the right direction. Just thinking about all the things we're doing here in New York City, and we've peaked our greenhouse gas emissions, and we're investing in climate solutions and divesting from fossil fuels, all these great things. Um, you know, it, we would never want to leave the impression that, you know, we don't need a real engaged federal government in order to deliver on uh, the things we need. And I think we're seeing that play out in a, a different way, but a, a very related way with COVID right now. I want to get to a question from Kim Fortune. She's asking, uh, is New York City planning for possible extreme weather events this summer still in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, you know, like we have to as a city, um, all sorts of things can happen. And, you know, one of the scarier impacts of this around the globe is what does disaster recovery look like um, from a flood, from a hurricane, from all these things during a moment when we need to be social distancing. And so I think there's a lot of smart people looking at this right now and trying to figure out what that playbook looks like. Um, but, you know, we can't keep our eyes off of the other threats that are over the horizon. Um, you know, in this moment when we're dealing with a current crisis, it's hard to do, but you know, it's it's essential that we've that we're able to that we need to be able to focus on all these threats that are coming at us. So I want to you just before that that question came in, you were talking about federalism, really. Um, I had Don Kettle on last week, and he has this great new book called *The Divided States of America*. And we're talking about this problem of of federalism, which in some ways is a strength for our country because we have you know. Political action is possible, democratic organization and action is possible at different levels. And states and cities are often seen as so-called laboratories for democracy where policy ideas can be tried out. And yet he offered a caution, and I wanna bring that to you and see what you think about it, that if New York City advances a strong climate change agenda and San Francisco does, but Biloxi, Mississippi doesn't, or, or I don't want to pick on Biloxi. Let's see who else can I pick up. I should I shouldn't single out any city because they're probably trying in Biloxi too. But other cities don't. Then you end up with these inequalities across the country. And so, why do people in San Francisco or New York 
deserve to be on a pathway towards more sustainability and greater health and people in other states don't. Can, can you take that on and bring us into this question of how cities and the nation are inter interreacting, interrelating right now? That's well, I think, I mean, your point around like, you know, being able to have different levels of government be able to take dif make different choices and experiment in different ways. There's no one solution to climate change. We, you know, we did a whole palette of solutions. And so trying out different things and learning from all the best practices is a, is a good thing in my mind. Mm. Um, but I think what your question really raises to me is that, you know, if, if we don't ultimately come together on a set of, you know, on a palette of solutions and a, and a goal and a direction, we're, we're going to end up in a, and this can happen globally as well. There's a huge inequity. There's an equity challenge around how do you invest for climate change? Do you invest in the local adaptation needs because you're just going to assume that, you know, the seas are coming, it's going to get hotter and I'm going to just protect me. Or do you continue to invest in the mitigation that's necessary around greenhouse gas emission reduction that doesn't really have a local benefit, air quality benefits aside, you know, if, you, if you're cutting your greenhouse gas emissions, you're just one small piece of the pie globally. And if no one else does, then does it matter? So wouldn't I rather put my money into protecting the people who vote in this particular constituency, um, in this location? I think there's a real challenge there because we, we can't ignore, we're not going to adapt our way out of this. We need to be doing both. And we ultimately have a, a, a it's a, it's a collective action challenge across the globe to really get our greenhouse gas emissions down. Um, and yes, there are some local benefits to doing that, but really the benefits accrue globally if we can uh, bend the curve and get ourselves, you know, off of the summit, uh, off of like a three degree trajectory, for instance, which is what it seems like we're on right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and no amount of adaptation spending is going to be able to deal with the disruptions that are coming from that anyway. So I think it's, um, you know, we need to get the the money and the lobbying from the fossil fuel industry out of the politics and out of the global climate talks in order to really get to the solutions that are necessary. And we need to find a way to, for a, a true just transition for the workers in those industries, um, because I think that's a that's been a big sticking point. There hasn't been a there's been a lot of talk about that. It hasn't you know materialized in a real way. But what we've seen. And going back to what C40 has been doing, you know, in their Global Green New Deal initiatives, they've been pulling labor, they've been pulling the environmentalists, and they've been pulling government together. And having labor at the table, I think, is so critically important and really is a game changer for being able to, um, to pivot some of the high carbon industries into something different and to make sure that we're protecting jobs and livelihoods while we're doing that. I want to come to a couple of questions here. Uh, which are intertwined uh, in a way, but I'll read them back to back. One is from a, a teacher. Um, what do educators, especially at the university level, need to do to prepare next generation professionals to participate and lead a just transition, which you're talking about as a just transition, part one. The second question comes um, from a student, <laughs> and uh, I presume they're not at the same place. Uh, what should we as students be doing in preparation for such transitions? So. Wow, what a, what a powerful couple of questions there about education, both from the teacher's perspective and the student's perspective. What's your advice to them? Um, I think, you know, what we've seen with youth movements over the last year and like a, just a dawning realization that, um, that this, this next generation is, is poised to see things that we, will have, we have never seen before in human history in terms of the kind of climate changes and uh, disruptions that are coming has really been a, a, a game changer in the climate space and, and put a really fine point on the intergenerational nature and the inequities that are, that are part of climate change. And I think one of, the, one of the answers here is clearly climate needs to be baked into everything. It needs to be baked into how we educate the next generation and not in the way that maybe we would have done a generation ago where climate feels like a, like a part of the environmental story when we know that climate actually is a part of just about everything. And, you know, if you're in the business school, you need to be thinking about the climate risks in portfolios and supply chains and, you know, and your energy sources. You, if, you're, if you're a medical doctor, you need to have a, or in the public health space, you need to know what the, the climate change impacts are going to be in your field and how that's going to impact public health over time. I, too often, I think we've we've narrowed climate into the environmental space and married it up a little too closely with the you know sort of save the whales ethos in the in the uh, environmental space. And climate is 
sort of an all society problem and we need to be educating the next generation and probably this generation to be thinking of it differently in that way that it is really it touches everything if you care about affordable housing well climate change will make that more challenging if you care about transportation well here's another set of things that we need to be thinking about in a climate lens there's so many climate adjacent policies and impacts uh, that it's not just about um, you know, it's not just about the pure energy or the environment or clean water, clean air. It's it's a much bigger problem than that. And we need to be educating the next generation to think of it that way. It's a systems problem. I've been around the university long enough to, to certainly remember when, uh, first of all, even teaching a class about climate change was not something that was in any curriculum. It had to be taught in our honors college because it was a separate interdisciplinary thing. But also, is it was an environmental. It was something that only the environmental science students somehow were interested in. But I've seen it move into all these different spaces and all these different curricula in the university. That's certainly observable. Um, it, it's probably. Been, it, it, I wonder if you, what your opinion is on this. Is it more entrepreneurial? Is it individual people that have come to this conclusion that want to find ways to think about climate in their space, but the systems don't fully are not fully set up to help you do that. And I think that's the sort of systemic educational challenge that we need to think about and the systemic you know, social challenge that we have to, to make sure that you know, we in government and those in education and others are, are, are telling this story in the right way and helping people see those connections so they can go even further and it's not just uh, you know, the entrepreneurial effort, which is good, but not sufficient. Well, I think that's, I, I really like that question. And I think in part, it's a challenge in higher education um, and K through 12 education too, of what kind of citizens are we trying to teach and what kind of economy are we, you know, training them for, just as you said, with your experience with Hurricane Sandy in New York, are we going to rebuild New York to prepare for, um, you know, just as it was, but maybe with a slightly higher seawall, or are we going to take this opportunity to rethink our systems for a world that we know is coming? Higher education struggles with the same exact problems, right? I mean, um, in Pennsylvania, where I teach, that's a, a state that was dominated by railroads and coal and steel making things for a long time. It takes a long time to get past. There's a long tail to fossil fuel and heavy industry, even the, the marks that it leaves on the way our cities are built, the way we think about what, what kind of work has value, the way we think about these communities, as you were talking about, you know, who lives where, who's exposed to these dangers and who isn't, it doesn't, those things don't unravel all at once. Industrialization was a hard knot. And so I'm impressed with your sort of desire to speak to it across these many different domains, but you're still describing a world that's hard, I think, in many times for people to fully envision. Right, right. And I'll tell you this, in, in terms of my own education, they don't teach you this stuff in engineering school, right? Like I, I come from that, um, that space of building things and big and concrete and steel sort of uh, solutions to things. But, you know, the solutions that we need in this space, as I've come to learn, is, is more social and more political um, than just the things you need to build. And we will need to build a lot of things for sure. Um, but that's only a piece of the equation. And, you know, like, even just thinking about what we knew and when we knew it about climate change and the sort of the, the, famous Jim Hansen testimony before Congress in 1988. Well, you know, 10 years later after that, I was sitting in engineering school and wouldn't have heard a peep about the kinds of things that you need to understand about climate in order to design the infrastructure of the future. It's, it's a, it, I think only now is the engineering community and the engineering education community coming around to, um, you know, sustainable development and resilient infrastructure and thinking about these challenges. And you know that delay was bought and paid for by the fossil fuel industry. It is crystal clear that th that was like some of the biggest roadblock to getting you know what might have been the last generation on uh, 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 that that we may be in to have been doing more on this because of all those seeds of doubt that had been planted for so long. I want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about the 2050 plan, and by way of that, I want to ask something kind of specific because. You know, the, the case you're making here that climate change um, planning cannot be in a vacuum. It can't just be in one office in, in the city. I mean, it's, it's in your office, but it's, it's a citywide initiative. Um, how does the 2050 plan connect with 
emergency management and disaster management plans more generally. In New York, you know, a lot of what I think about is this relationship between disasters and time. Some are happening on very tight time frames, and others of them are much slower, like climate change. That's often posed real problems for cities when they do their planning. Yeah. I'm sure you've thought about this. How does how can bring us into the 2050 plan and how you plan for things that are at different timescales? Right. Well, I, you know, there's there's different timescales on the realities of the challenges we're facing, and then there's different timescales on the ability to act on those challenges. And just to you know put it very clearly, we we are fortunate as a city to be able to do long-term strategic planning and think about what 2050 looks like and set a vision for where we want to be as a city. Um, but we also, as in working for Mayor de Blasio, we have less than two years left in office. So what are the things that we do now in order to make sure that we're staying on that trajectory and handing off the keys to the next team so that they can keep doing smart things and make different choices, um, but ultimately in a way that's informed by the science and uh, cognizant of the realities of uh, what climate change is going to bring. And I think one of the real hallmarks of the, the 2050 plan that we put out, the one NYC document, was stitching together the different um, parts of, you know, different threats that we face, different strengths the city has, and really addressing not just climate, it's not just a climate plan, but it's also, you know, it's a plan around addressing the health and wealth inequities in the city. It's a plan for strengthening our democracy. It's all of the physical infrastructure, yes, but it's the social services and the connections. It really is an integrated approach to making sure that we are um, you know, on track for dealing with uh, the challenges that are coming at us in a holistic way that you know, delivers real near-term benefits to New Yorkers uh, now and make sure that we're on the trajectory for uh, you know, for the next generation to have a livable climate and to be able to live healthy lives and a stronger democracy, all of those, um, all of those initiatives that we're pursuing. And of course, we're in a moment where, you know, COVID is, you know, threatening a number of budget lines, and we're going to be going through an economic uh, challenge for the next several years. But, you know, what was important about today's announcement from the mayor with, you know, 36 other mayors around the globe is really saying that, you know, these long-term challenges of equity and climate and inequality in, in our cities um, has to be at the heart of the recovery from this crisis because those other problems aren't going away. And you know all of the decisions we make on how to invest and how to spend in this moment to recover and accelerate the economic recovery um, from COVID have to be through the same lens of uh, green jobs, job creation, environmental justice, equity, um, that will ensure that we, you know, continue to have a city that we all want to live in as New Yorkers and that we all, and I think that that story hopefully plays out all across the globe. I want to ask you a question about science, education, and communication, kind of tying back a little bit to our previous discussion about universities. And I think about the important role in a place like New York City of the parks, um, of big museums, I think in Philadelphia, like our Academy of Natural Sciences, you know, institutions that have played a longstanding role in sort of science education. Um, those places are, are closed right now. Mm. You know, we've seen it, and I think we, we're, I'm worried about this, you know, that in this moment of real dire need, where people do need to connect to real scientific information, um, they're kept out of those spaces. And I know like the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia, they're struggling. I mean, they're working hard to try to, you know, continue that messaging. And I, right. I don't know how you see that in, in New York, you know, how to continue the pandemic is, is kind of putting science education on hold a little, a little bit in terms of museums and schools. Um, how do we continue through this moment to educate? Well, I think, I think everyone's struggling with that in lots of ways. I have friends who are educators and, um, in college and in high schools and elementary schools. And, you know, the, the transition to online learning is, um, you know, is bumpy. You know, we haven't, you know, really had to do this at scale. And, you know, I see some of our institutions here in New York City are doing, and I'm getting all the emails from the American Museum of Natural History or the Liberty Science Center in New Jersey, and they're offering programs online. I, what I don't know is how, how many you know, how much uptake they get on those programs versus what their normal attendance might be. I'm sure it's much lower. Um, they're trying, I think we're all trying to figure out what a socially distanced, um, you know, set of program delivery looks like and educational delivery. And uh, I'm sure there will be books written on this uh, over the next several decades on what this mass experiment is, is teaching us. 
and I, hopefully we can figure out how to make these tools better because, you know, it, it, maybe we were too, um, it was too easy to get on a plane to go to, mm. go to a meeting. Maybe it was too easy to, um, you know, think about how we travel around for different experiences. You know, one of the solutions, of course, on climate change is to, you know, burn less of those fuels that are currently required for all that travel. These tools can be part of that solution uh, over time and, you know, might cause us to think differently about how we make those choices. But the tools have to work for that to, I think, really bake itself into uh, to how people make those choices. I know there's a strong debate right now about um, whether or not higher education, like real higher education, can be delivered remotely or can it be done in person. I think people are having the same discussions about museums or other places that we're used to going to physically. But I think we are at an inflection point here where we're going to re-examine all of those things. Um, and I'm, I, I like your hopefulness um, that maybe this is showing us, you know, some of the opportunities, even though we don't want to have to deal with it in this, in this way, in this moment. I want to get to one more question. Be cognizant of time. We're almost up on time here, but you could just sneak one more question in for Dan's really if you want to send it into YouTube live chat. Um, Dan, this comes from uh, Amy Slayton. She's asking, in the United States, we educate for work. Could an educational transformation of the kind you're talking about maybe be an easier starting point than trying to persuade corporate interests that new economic models are needed? Oh boy, I mean, um there's there's a, probably a lot there's a lot of richness in a question like that that's really thinking about the you know the structures that we have in place in you know in the workplace in education what that pipeline looks like and I'm by no means an expert on this and so I could just you know spout off on my own on what I think about this but the um, what's what's fundamental to me I think is you know if you're if you're going through education it has to have an outcome where you will have a livelihood at the end of it. If it is so narrowly focused on a particular job, well, that job may not be there in the future. Um, you know, jobs keep transitioning and nobody really has a great crystal ball on how all that plays out. But the fundamental skills, the respect for science and the understanding of science, I think are critical here. And the ability to be agile in your thinking, I think those are the skills that, you know, are always in demand or always going to be in demand. And if you're pointing yourself towards a certain career and thinking about your education that way, well, it, it's, it's, in, it's incredibly important to make sure you get those fundamental skill sets in place because those are transferable. Um, whereas, you know, the, the kind of education where you learn this software program to do this kind of, um, you know, uh, programming, well, maybe that's, you know, a, a harder way to think about, um, you know, the workforce training needs of the future. But we want to make sure that people have respect for science, that they understand the, the challenges and that there are opportunities that don't lock us into high carbon industries, for instance. And we want more people thinking about how those how that transition is going to happen, because it, it's not going to just come down from on high. It's going to need all of us. One last quick question for you, Dan, and it's I think it's applicable. So much of our discussion today has been about what we learn from this pandemic that allows us to think more clearly about climate change. Um, but maybe I might, this last question is a little bit in the inverse. What do you, what keeps you going in your climate change work? What give, continues to give you optimism that we can then apply into this pandemic? I mean, I guess it, in a sense, it's a kind of way of asking you, how do you get up and do the work you do every morning and not- Yeah, I, I, not, I sort of I always hate the, hate the what gives you hope sort of questions because, you know, there's, you know, if you look at the reality of this, that, you know- But I think we need that reservoir of hope right now. Yeah. I think um, there's hope in action and there's hope in um, actually coming together with neighbors and um, doing good things. Um, you know, what clearly what keeps me going with, you know, three young kids and thinking about what the future holds for them and for everyone else's kids. Once you understand the realities of climate change, there's almost no other thing you can do. Um, you have to be in the space. You have to be working on this. It's uh, it's it's a it almost becomes a calling for those of us who find ourselves in this space and really understand what's happening. And we want to share that with everybody and really make sure that, you know, we can all get in this together because it's all of our kids that are uh, going to inherit the mess that we've made. I want to remind people you've been listening to COVID calls and tomorrow I'll be talking with Jeanette Sutton and John Donovan about risk communication and about misinformation and COVID-19. Dan's really, thank you so much for making time to talk on COVID calls. It's been a really great conversation and I wish you great, health and success as you keep working from your your office there at home and good luck with everything that's
that you have on your plate. It's, it's a lot. Yeah. Thank you so much, Scott. And thanks for doing this. These are, uh, those are really important conversations. Appreciate Stay healthy, it. everyone. Thanks. We'll see you tomorrow.